I'd like to talk about Bill Hopkins, who is obviously not a household name, although he was one of the angry young men in the 1950s, which was one of the major cultural groups or sort of explosions that occurred in this society after the Second World War. They weren't a coherent group, they didn't come together, they weren't like the continental intellectuals who form a group and then publish a manifesto where each of them makes a declaration that achieves some sort of a solemn and combined purpose. They were a disparate group of youngish men who were corralled into the designation of the angry young men by the media in the early 1950s. Indeed, they were one of the first stunts or cultural creations of the post-war mass media because they all seemed to be against the system of sort of Tory consensual Britain in the early to mid-1950s. The most famous of them, of course, was John Osborne, the playwright who wrote Look Back in Anger, technically on the left, who moved in a sort of crotchety, slightly ultra-Tory and rightwards direction as he got older, and ended up denouncing immigration when he'd actually been a pro-CND progressive at the beginning, so he has a certain sort of trajectory across the cultural horizon. Another member of the Angry Young Men, who's forgotten now, though he made a very considerable film, was the filmmaker Lindsay Anderson, who made a film called If, uh, which is an extraordinary film about public school life. He also made a very left-wing film, because he was a fellow trammer of the Communist Party to a certain extent, but it was also a culturally independently-minded leftist up to a degree, called Britannia Hospital. This was a film from the early 1980s, which, because it was released with great fanfare the moment the Falklands War was happening, died a critical and public death almost instantly. This sort of anti-system film from a leftist perspective went straight down the plug. He had great problems making any films uh, because of the amounts of money that needed to be raised. Indeed, one subtext to all of the angry young men and how they were treated by the society and its culture was that in the end nearly all of them were broken or pushed to one side or didn't fulfil their potential or partly weren't allowed to fulfil their potential in various ways. Another member of this group who disassociated himself pretty quickly from it was Kingsley Amis. And Kingsley Amis was, as he's widely known now, partly through the uh, literary architecture of his son after his father's death, a communist fellow traveller. And more than a communist fellow traveller in his early years. He's another of these ones who has a blue road to Damascus conversion and becomes something like an ultra-Tory later in life. You know, he's a progressive leftist, he's against the post-war consensus and even Atlas administration. And then, switch forward 50 years, he's in the Garrett Club, drinking whiskey, moaning about immigration and writing to the spectator saying how dreadful it is. So there is a sort of progression with a lot of these people. Another of them was John Brain, who, although he wasn't technically in the inner group that was known as both angry, young and male, there was also a degree to which he really was morally part of that group, came down from the north, of course, wrote Room at the Top and all sorts of spin-offs, became a bit of a surrealist in some ways afterwards, wrote slightly uh, surreal, sort of aesthetically projected novels, the Bodhi and other things. Nearly all of Brain's work is about the morality and personal philosophy of sexual relations between men and women in one form or another. Brain was an old friend of Bill's. Brain was another sort of communist who later ended up in the Monday Club on the right wing of the Tory party. In fact, when I attended the Monday, when I joined the Monday Club when I was 18, 
and I was later to be expelled from the Monday Club twice because <laughs> they invited me back and then expelled me again just for the hell of it, you know. And I still keep the 70s Kipper Monday Club tie, the big blue one with MC on it that people think is the magic circle. <laughs> or they think it's Master of Ceremonies, but it's actually Monday Club. I keep that because they expelled me twice. John Brain joined the Monday Club and wrote a pamphlet call for them called John Brain. From the Communist Party of Great Britain to the Monday Club, an essay. So you see a certain progression with these sorts of people. Although some of their opponents and former collaborators, comrades and associates, would doubtless not have perceived it as a progression. Let's go down the list of other AYMs, as they were sometimes called. There was Colin Wilson. Now Colin Wilson is interesting in certain respects, because Wilson is now, despite the many, many millions he's made from writing what might be called popular or middle-brow literature, which contains an intellectual element, is despised by the intelligentsia and is despised by the mass culture, even after sort of 400 books translated into nine languages. And yet, he's unbelievably productive, unbelievably, almost to a logarithmic degree, it sort of churned out of him. Now... When he was younger, he was very influenced by Bill, and very influenced by his ideas. His first novel, Ritual in the Dark, was dedicated to Bill. And although The Outsider was written in the British Library's museum, uh, British Museum's reading room, the then British Library, when it was based over in the centre of Bloomsbury, where Karl Marx wrote Capital, of course, um, he used to sleep on Hampstead Heath in the summer, because Wilson, he was a different era then, Wilson came down from Leicester, one of 9, 10, 11, 12 children from a very poor working class background, went to work in a bicycle factory when he was 14, had no educational qualifications at all, and genuinely was an outsider, which is why his first book was called The Outsider. Angus Wilson, who was then the chief librarian at the British Library, Noticed him scribbling every day between the hours when you come in in the morning and leave at the, at the evening and said, what are you writing? And he gave him the first draft of The Outsider and he went to a publisher and indirectly, through Wilson's advice, it was published. Now, Wilson was taken up by the cultural literati of the time, was praised as a new genius by the Sitwells and this sort of thing, and then dumped and trashed. Uh, for his next book as a working class upstart and a revist who can't write a sentence and he's exceeded his brief and doesn't know what he's talking about. So he was brought forward, embraced and then slapped and sort of disappeared. But didn't disappear to the degree that he didn't write any more because he actually became, in Bill's view, and Colin is one of his oldest friends, a compulsive overproducer who's churned out an enormous mass of material. Whereas Bill, when he hit a wall at around this time, has produced virtually nothing since. So you have, that has been widely disseminated. So you have two contrary reactions. But if we actually look at Wilson's career, Wilson has been open to the dissemination of far-right views, even though he may not particularly disagree or agree with them himself. He wrote for Lodestar, which was a sort of literary and mildly theoretical journal that was um, put out by Geoffrey Hamm the ex-Mosley Island, and continuing Mosley Island for many years. Wilson also defended causes which were ideologically anti-system, illiberal, and very unfashionable. When somebody using the mild pseudonym Richard Harwood, whose real name is Richard Beryl, wrote a pamphlet called Did Six Million Really Die? 
Colin Wilson wrote a review, a reasonably neutral review, but a totally unhysterical review, in Books and Booksmen, which then was probably a much more important publication in that particular era than it is now. This was the internal journal within the book industry that's widely used to target particular books and post-manuscripts that will then get mass distribution in the major chains that exist. Now, Wilson said that this is an important thesis and may cause hysteria in certain areas that needs to be looked at. And for this, he alone became a little marked or a little smelly or was considered to have something about him that wasn't quite nice or quite right and this sort of thing. And in my view, these sort of, this openness to discourse which is unacceptable is partly Bill Hopkins' legacy on Colin Wilson. Colin Wilson wrote when the leap, or when The Divine and the Decay, which is Bill's only novel, was reissued in the early 1980s. He wrote the foreword to it. Here it is, foreword by Colin Wilson. When this book first appeared, Wilson writes, in 1957, it was attacked with unprecedented ferocity. Why did it cause such violent reactions? Now, we'll come on to this in a bit, because we're still going through the angry young men. Now, the angry young men had lots of sort of hangers-on and lesser people involved. There was also a Scots-Italian writer called Alexander Trochi, who used to write sort of pornographic novels. Kane's book is the most famous. He died with a sort of, of heroin overdose. Um, that's a quality spitum in all senses. Um, he used to meet Bill in Soho and describe his latest fights and this sort of thing, because he reckoned an intellectual to be able to mix it in the streets and so on. They came from an era, these people, that's slightly unique in Britain, because we've never had a coherent class intelligentsia in the way that many continental European societies do. When, you, when intellectuals go to salons and this sort of thing, which is very much a continental thing, although continental European intellectuals and academics and theorists and people who are in the media and literati and so on have these things often in London, and you're invited to them by sort of osmosis. People hear you're somebody of interest, often in the most superficial way imaginable, and they invite you into these circles. I attended one of these sorts of things when I was about 18, and lots of the intellectuals were talking about ordinary people. I don't know how they talking about. <laughs> and of course, I suddenly realised that this was their own class structure. There were intellectuals and the others who weren't intellectually minded. So I suddenly believe, and this of course is useful, because the vast majority of intellectuals, not all by any means, we're dealing with people who are quite contrary in this talk, but the vast majority of them adopt less humanist, quote-unquote lovely, less liberal, communistic, mildly Marxian ideas. The overwhelming majority do often just as lip service amongst, each other, amongst themselves, although there are more hardcore ideologues even than that. And yet when you go to those salons, they're talking about intellectuals and ordinary people. So always the hierarchy exists in the mind, even if the theory is contrary to it, because people raise it again in their own consciousness <coughs> and speech. Now, who else was associated with the angry young men? When in 57 several publishers got together, they decided because of the media controversy, which reached tabloid proportions, although the Sun wasn't much of an organ then, the Daily Mirror was essentially its sort of labourish equivalent. And these people were getting headlines. Osborne says he hates being English. Because mm. Osborne announced in a party that he didn't like being English. I love the English, he said. And therefore this was... Um, well, so what? A drunken man in a bus stop looks at his reflection and loathes himself and makes a remark that it's on the front of a tabloid newspaper the day after. Mm. And he later said he loves being English, but there's a difference of 40 years between the two statements. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And, but then he was an actor, 
as quite a lot of these people are in, in all sorts of mayoring of masks and taking them off again and that sort of way. Now, a publisher called Mashler, who later went on to be head of Penguin UK in the late 80s and early 90s, thought it would be a wheeze to get all these intellectuals who were angry and young and male to write their manifestos. And he called it declarations. A statement of intent from the angry young men. But the first essay is by a woman. So, <laughs> angry, young and female, you know. And she was Doris Lessing who was also a member of the Communist Party at that time, or at least a friendly travelling equivalent to the degree that, you know, whether she was actually in it or not didn't matter. And, but she was only in it because Master was having an affair with her at the time. You see how these things work. But all of the other people who were in the volume were angry, were young, were male, and were generically up to a point in this group. And the two that I haven't mentioned that were in this group, who've largely been lost sight of, John Wayne's another one, he's largely gone down now, were Bill Hopkins and Stuart Holroyd. And there's a reason why Bill Hopkins and Stuart Holroyd have partly gone down the memory hole. One is that since the 50s, they haven't really published, although everyone has known who they were. And the reason is that they were open to anger and were essentially youthful, but their politics came from a different direction. Holroyd wrote an essay, even a book, I believe, although I haven't read this personally, attacking parliamentary democracy. Attacking parliamentary democracy, which probably is, of all things, the most heretical thing, certainly in the 50s, when we all fought for democracy, of course, that you could possibly do. This really was anger and youth and maleness in a cocktail that wasn't particularly liked, and he didn't publish again, beyond, with a mainstream press, beyond his essay in declarations. And then there was Bill Hopkins. Now, Bill wrote this essay in declarations called Ways Without a Precedent, which is a Nietzschean sort of manifesto. And he followed it up with this novel, which was reissued in the mid-1980s, called The Leap. This was because, prospectively, it was to be filmed, and this wasn't talk. I mean, there were producers signing contracts and so on. But in the end, as often with these projects, it came to nothing. The real name of the novel is The Divine and the Decay. Um, now, this is the original edition, actually. So I bought it in Hay on Wye, where books go to die for £7, although in the internet they charge you up to £100 for this, you know. Now it's a bit, poor, you know, it's a bit smelly, you know. Um, at the front says to Jonathan Baird and a fellow warrior from Bill Hopkins. But um, this is an interesting book in all sorts of ways because this is a book which is a fantasy about a man who essentially gets up in the morning and decides that he wants to be dictator of Britain. And how will he go about morally, aesthetically, psychologically, intellectually, and ideologically becoming a man who is worthy to be a dictator of Britain? It's based on the Nietzschean idea that artists of genius should rule. And of course it becomes a little more controversial when you realise that there's one artist in particular who ruled a particular society at a particular time who was very unfashionable and not especially liked in austerity-ridden post-war 50s Britain who might be compared to the aesthetic, white-faced, loose-limbed and black-haired hero of this uh, particular novel. <laughs> now, it's based about, upon ideas which are in many ways completely heretical and blasphemous and 
unacceptable to such a degree is that even many of the partisans of Bill don't ultimately uh, own up to where they end. Um, because Bill, who's been involved in endless shenanigans and scandals throughout his entire life, has lived about, without hero worshipping to him too much, to be frank, he's lived about six, seven, eight lives. The first was as an author. Bill was born in Cardiff in 1928. But as he'll tell you, I loathe the Welsh. Because he doesn't like being Welsh. Because he associates Welshness with victimhood. And he said he aligns with the English. Because they're the dominant nation within the United Kingdom. He's like one of these absurd Croats who used to claim that sort of the capital of Serbia was actually in Croatia, you know. Um, and, but... I know what he means, because being partly Celtic myself, there is at times amongst uh, Celtic people when they gather together a certain whining, you know, that we're minorities. That I remember Kenneth Griffiths, the actor, once said to me, it's all the English, you know. He said, they're like jackboots on a throat, you know, you know. And, um, you know, and I said, do you really believe that, Kenneth? And he said, all my life, I've been persecuted by these people. And I said, why do you call this the house Michael Collins' house then? That's because he's an Irish nationalist. And he said, well, it's all the same, isn't it? Those bloody Germans! By which he means the English. <laughs> you know. And it is a sort of rhetorical nonsense that people get out of themselves when they lose to the Welsh at rugby or whatever. But it does exist. And in a society without mass immigration, actually, it would probably be more prominent as a discourse than it would otherwise. And Bill would say to all these Welsh types coming towards him, he'd say, a rude word. I'm with the English, he would say, and they'd all go, oh, you know, <laughs> you know dreadful. Um, Adorno, in his um, theory of fascist psychology, the S-scale, as it's called, has a scale for people who are psychologically fascistically minded. Bill would be off that scale. He'd be so off that scale that the methodology of the scale doesn't actually apply to him uh, as an individual. And one of the prerequisites, according to Theodore Adorno, who was the leading theorist of the Frankfurt Group of Western Marxists, who says that one of the primary characteristics of what we'll call in quotation marks the fascistic mentality is identification with the violator, which means the victor in any particular consequence. In other words, if you look at the Indian mutiny as a historically normative happening, you side with uh, the British, you side with the English within the British, you even side with Sikh regiments and uh, people who aligned with the Raj, if you like, against other groups. You align with that group that wins. Um, it's not a very good codex because everyone would align with Blair, wouldn't they? Mm -hmm. If they had that sort of view. Um, but because isn't he a winner? Isn't the great peacemaker invading Iraq on a regular basis and making a great mess of it? But irrespective of all that, this scale would certainly suit Bill. Because Bill... Um, is an extraordinary example of an intellectual, because he is an intellectual, even an ultra-intellectual, who in his own way is highly sensitive and aesthetic. And just like all the people who are characterised as lovers, such as lovers for labour and so on, mm. but his views are the absolute and totalitarian opposite of those views that convulse the present clerisy. It's almost as if it's like, we, it's like coming across a dinosaur or a strange fossil or something that's sort of spiritually a relic from another era because his is the psychology of an era where the West never apologised, was totally proud of what it was, regarded itself as a preeminent civilization 
whatever discourse it felt about itself without any apology whatsoever at all all moments of the day without the odd sort of odd bit of liberal hand-wringing and funk and self-denial and so in a way it was a sort of um, sort of shock therapy for many people um, he used to go in the 50s and until the 80s or 90s to these salons in West London I attended a few of them run by Jean Pell, run by other prominent art dealers and critics and BBC executives and other people and people would say isn't the Rwandan genocide terrible? and Bill would say no I think there's too many of them anyway and people would be would be horrified it would be it, it, it's sort of it's partly a test of course he's doing it because his view is that the liberal left mind and zeitgeist is based on an easy and bland sympathy which is universal that loves all but for the concrete individual in front of them they don't give a damn and they'll step over you just like that and what he's doing is he's facing them with the, some of the psychological architecture of their own undignified position and his other view of course is that western intellectuality is based upon conflict and is based upon dialectic and all these people who say that thought is free and we will say anything we want and if we want to have an article in the BNS Biennale which consists of a crucifix in a large tub of urine and it's called Peace Christ, it's called, and this is an artwork, this is a conceptual, pre-Turner Prize conceptual artwork and so on. You know, they wouldn't say the same about Islam, of course, because they don't want to get into that. And they also want to live, they want to live a bit longer, which is something that can't really be gainsaid, can it really? But at the same time, he is pushing the idea of all this freedom you're talking about. Let's unpack this freedom. Let's be Socratic. What is freedom? How far are you prepared to go in order to exclude the possibility of it? What is a really liberal statement where you say, I would literally die for your right to say anything, while you're holding a hand over the other chap's mouth? And this sort of thing, why not push it a bit further and a bit further? And people say, well, that's not a very humanist attitude, Mr. Hopkins. And it says, well, I'm not a humanist. And they say, you're not a humanist? He said, no, I don't believe human life is worthwhile just as an entity, like a slug, and I don't believe that any life is outside of hierarchy, of race, of gender, of civilization, of intellect, of beauty, of spiritual preponderance. Everything is hierarchical. He would make a liberal statement occasionally, he once said, but then again, even within a superior race, he said the difference between the higher man and the lower <laughs> is the difference almost between a near God and a worm. That's his concession to liberal multi-ethnic vision. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Bill, Bill reminds me very much of that essay by Evola, which is critical of fascism and national socialism from the right, not from the left and not from the centre, but it, in a sense it isn't sort of radical enough because his view is essentially rather like one of these iodine tests that everything is so weak so broken down so syphilitic morally and spiritually that you really need something acidic to a rebarbative and it is repellent that will repel it, that will appall it, that will confront it that will break it just as in a way his career was um, partly broken 
but yet again had another one. Um, <laughs> Bill was in the army after the war in occupied Germany, and his wife, Carla, is German, and he was in Hamburg. And he said during the summer, because they were in the British occupation zone, you could hear, feel and smell the stench of all the corpses under the buildings, because all the buildings have been flattened, mostly by British um, bomber command activities. And Bill comes from a long line of actors, and his father was a reasonably famous music hall artiste of the period and before. Think Jimmy Tarbuck, think those sorts of people. They're well known in their era, but as soon as they're gone, almost no one remembers them. But they're famous names, pre-televisual, middle-brow, lower-middle-brow British comedy names. And his father once lived in the Ritz and had endless hangers-on and lay in a bath with his mouth open with people pouring down, fellow Welshmen as Bill would say, pouring down, pouring out liquor down his mouth and he ended in Streatham with no money at all, in a bedsit, fiddling with a gas heater. Because these are the, they're radical types, you see. It's all or nothing. You know, one woman the next, another show, another show. You're rich, you're on the floor. You know, they're radical types. Uh, and he grew up in the world of Penny anti-Carney and mainstream to fringe theatre that John Osborne comes out of. Indeed, yeah, Osborne's very similar in background to Bill because they're both sort of... Uh, Anglo-Welsh in complicated ways. I mean, the second major play that Laurence Olivier played in as a film, based upon that sort of world, the, the, um, the entertainer, yeah. that world is incarnated, really, that small, slightly enclosed British world of the theatre, that great sort of moment of mock Shakespearean Trinity, when the character of the comedian looks at the audience and there's none of them. They're all gone because they're watching telly, you see, it's the 50s, it's a dying world. And he says, look at me, missus, he says, look at these eyes. I'm dead behind the eyes. And it's a sort of moment when that entire world shudders to a halt. Bill came from that world, and his, his mother was a sort of musical beauty. He was paid just to walk along the stage, and then walk back again with increasingly less clothing on. And that sort of thing, and various sort of light eyes and goggles misted up. and this sort of thing. So he comes from that sort of world, he likes a good show. You know, and one thing he would say to me is that it's all a show. Judges, politicians, yeah. royalty, it's all show business, really. They're all acting, they're all performing, Blair's performing, uh, the judge who said Irving Dan's performing, they're all doing it. Yeah. It's how things are run, it's how things are formatted in front of people who receive power in various circumstances. The other thing that's very important about him is that this acting bohemian background is in a way unique to England and Britain, classless. Yeah. Because in our very hierarchical society, which of course this society still is, um, although it's been bent around quite a lot and changed in some of its definitions, but in the era he was born into, far, far more so than today, and 50 years before at the beginning of the 20th century, even more so, even to a degree it was impossible for many people to move, really. Um, that bohemian aesthetic strand could go right up and down the society. There's one time in his life when Prince Charles, I hope he, hadn't, he hasn't kept these letters and diaries, was quite a close friend of Bill's because he knew all of these people at certain times in his life because somebody has to. There's also a degree to which many people used to test themselves against him because he's sort of a secret figure in some ways in British post-war history. He is the intellectual 
He is the thinker who represents the viewpoint that no one ever mentions. But he's there as a nemesis, as a shadow, as a sort of death's head at the feast in these sorts of parties. Um, the one that people almost sort of test themselves against in argument and dialectic because it is a position which is disprivileged. In France, after the war, um, French radical right-wing intellectuality, of which there was a very large tradition, went underground. And this was after Robert Brasselash was guillotined uh, for treason to the French Republic. Intellectual treason, because he'd done nothing but publish a magazine called Je Suis Partout. And he was guillotined for that. And for his uh, collaboration with Otto Abetz, who was the cultural sort of commanding officer of Germany in France. And contrary to certain things, Germany's, Germany's domination German's domination of France was in that war very liberal, very mild, extraordinarily civilised actually. But that intellectuality went underground. In Britain, we've always had a far-right intellectuality. Henry Williamson, an old friend of Bill's, was one of the people that was going to be talked about earlier on, and he represents it. Thomas Carlyle in the 19th century represents it. Wyndham Lewis at the beginning of the 20th century represents it. John Brain... Um, John Button, to a certain extent, represents elements of it. It's always been there, but it's always slightly denied, slightly obscure. People slightly deny what they are. They put up certain masks to face off against it. They go slightly underground. They have a history of never joining any groups, because that's the one way you're demonised and corralled. Um, Bill's completely against my involvement in the British National Party, for example. He just says that. Yeah. You're marching around with the uh, with a totem of slavery. He says they'll come down on you with their beams, and you'll be there, and they'll say, "Nazi, there he is," and you're finished, and that sort of thing. And I said, "Well, they've always said that about you, Bill." And they said, "Have they? <laughs> <laughs> have they indeed?" He says, "I have a writ here for the first man who dares." You know. Uh, now, one of Bill's friends, ironically, um, in all sorts of ways, because Bill's a complicated man was the partner, was the screenplay writer for nearly all of the early films, and they're great films as well, by Michael Powell. And his name, of course, was Emmerich Pressburger. And Bill, he sought Bill out in the 1970s, I think. And sort of MacDonald, who's a grandchild of Pressburger, wrote a book which has a chapter about Bill in it called... Something like the heart of intellectual evil, I think. Something like that. You know, heart of intellectual evil. Not the heart of dark, darkness, Conrad's short novel. And uh, he said that Pressburger was a masochist who sought Bill out to be abused and enslaved and whipped and that sort of thing, morally and mentally. And he said that Bill was an elitist and an anti-humanist and an anti-Semite, and this sort of thing. And um, Bill wrote all sorts of explicits in, the, in this 426, I think, of pages, and he went down to a lawyer, and the lawyer said, get rid of those explicits from the first time, so he cut all that bit out. And he sued uh, Faber, because it was quite a mainstream book, and he sued MacDonald, and that book's never been reissued in um, paperback. And I said, but Bill, he said, yes. I said, waiting for the moment, he said, um, Everything he said about you was true. He said, that's not the point. You must never allow them to say it! <laughs> I, and he said, he said, um, uh, he said, uh, anyway, I, I have all sorts of Jewish friends who don't believe Israel should exist. Quite right. <laughs> yeah. Quite right. 
And he said, as to class and elitism, I believe only in the class of the mind and of mentality. And all can come from that background and surmount the hurdle of the bourgeoisie. <laughs> so he's always got an answer. Uh, but he would say that's the way of being an intellectual. You see, you've always got an answer for these people. Um, because in a sense, you're fighting a war with them. And you don't just, sort of Ceausescu before the government at the end, just go down. You put up all sorts of screens and you engage in all sorts of activities which are a sort of traditionalist British, British authors would call pluck. Not frontal assault, not the devastation of our young manhood in the First World War, but tumbling under, going behind, having a false friendship with somebody and then collapsing it and going in. I think the present chairman of my party would like that sort of strategy. <laughs> and there's a degree to which these strategies of dividing people against themselves when they're enemies, of not going down in a glorious 7th Cavalry sort of frontal assault type thing, is his way of doing it, particularly when you're in an isolated position. I mentioned French intellectuality earlier. After this novel was published, Bill met Sartre and Camus in Paris. And Sartre, Sartre had a physical reaction when he went, Bill. He went, Fascist! He said, we brought you in the war. And Bill said, you didn't do any fighting, you were busy writing a few plays, you know. Um, and he said, anyway, you studied Heidegger in the 30s in Germany when you didn't know anything that was going on, and you were keen on essentialist and primordial and traditionalist theories, which are close to people like Gwenon, Heidegger secularized them in the 20th century, and are actually part of the metaphysical system of your most appalling adversaries. And Sartre says, we're not getting on. <laughs> <laughs> and Camus was there as well because this was early and Sartre and Camus who ended up hating each other's guts mm. although Sartre said he liked him after he had a car crash um, there's, there's, and, which of course he was no longer around to receive the plaudit um, Sartre was there uh, Simone de Beauvoir was there and her other lover at the time Algren who wrote the novel about drug addiction The Man with the Golden Arm was there Bill used to say, Sartre was there reading a Simonon novel and now going to be on the job, you know. But they'd all be talking about theory because they were totally theoretical people. Sartre's great project was to marry existentialism and Marxism. And he tried it in being and nothingness and the dialectic of critical reason, which is based on Kant. He tried, in a sense, to come up with a system that would justify Stalinism in the second volume of the Critic of Dialectical Reason, but he couldn't finish it. Because even he couldn't, re couldn't get to that dialectical high. Now, the interesting thing about Bill is that sort of intellectual purity where he has been in a zone where he has literally met these people and many others like them. Because one thing that comes out is why is he an outsider? Why is, why is he and his ideas partly those of a man alone? Well, if you think about it logically, if we had a powerful and proficient and foregrounded and essentialist civilization in the West, his views, possibly with some of the ruthlessness of the rhetoric hived off, would be the mainstream. And all of these people who say that the mentally ill are sane and say that white people are guilty forever and say that criminals are victims of society and say that the only crime is punishment of those who've done one. And all of these ideas, which are sort of ultra-left, anarchistic, and culturally Marxian ideas, which are everywhere, 
which are in the mass media, which are in the tertiary sector of education, which are in schools at the intermediate and the lower level. These are the hegemonic ideas of this civilization. He is a demon, and these views are central. There was once a time, of course, when those views were, de- were demonic and other. And people used to meet in little Bloomsbury circles and have little funny handshakes, because, you know, you needed to trust somebody. And you liked things which were regarded as deviant and other, and they were in opposition to everything. Opposition to patriotism, opposition to imperialism, opposition to a sense of race, opposition to family, opposition to military service, opposition to the death penalty, um, opposition to the absence of taking drugs in public, um, and all of this sort of thing. Virtually all of these things are now in the mainstream. And that which was contrary is now in the reverse, and meets in rooms with young men outside, you know, with heavy jackets, via redirection points, and that sort of thing. It's been a complete reversal, linguistically, morally, emotionally, psychologically, intellectually. An extraordinary reversal, when you realise that the Western superstructure is still hegemonic. When some little Iraqi fighting back with his pop gun sees an enormous flying tank come over the desert sands towards him, which is what these helicopter gunships are, um, and he's obliterated before he's even sort of got worked out how to get the Kalashnikov off the side of his shoulder. The West is triumphant, you know, and yet its ideas based upon, are based upon a moral squeamishness about what some liberal imperialists and globalists are actually doing elsewhere in the world. You would think they would have... They created a dialectical situation where they're against the logic of their own behaviour outside this country yeah. as these countries internally go to pieces and fracture to bits under their ideas. So in the third world it's a bit of this, but here we love them all and they can all come and replace us in our own island. And um, Bill used to, used to live in North Kensington in an area called Notting Hill. And in the 1950s, of course, there all sorts of things going to go on in Notting Hill. And one of Bill's other lies is his links with sort of various right-wing groups. In 1974 or 75, like J.R.R. Tolkien for a year, I believe, he joined the National Front. Bill certainly joined the National Front, because John Tyndall put it on, if not the cover, then the inside, that cover. I mean, made the inside, Bill said to me. A famous writer joins National Front. There was... I haven't seen that edition, but I believe there was one. Now, he joined the National Front in 74-75, of course, when it was the possibility of an electoral breakthrough at that time. Henry Williamson told him, never join a far-right group. It ruined my life, you know. Um, but there we are. But Bill then left after a while, because he didn't think that particular model would work. And there's an entrepreneurial side to Bill, a sort of starter-upper and then dropper side as he goes on to his next project. Um, when he published The Divine and the Decay, the reaction to it, that this was a novel that was apologetic of inhumanism, that it was against the Enlightenment, that it was a novel that was on, not even appeasing, but supporting it, a post-collaborationist novel, it was called. It's, only a, it's a novel. But the idea is that theoretically it's aligning itself with that which we defeated. In fact, there's a book called The Angry Decade in which it said that Hopkins is a demonic man that people shouldn't listen to, and he shouldn't be published either. And McGibbon and Key, who are obscure now, but were a tributary, Jonathan Cape is a confluence of publishers of which McGibbon and Key was one, so it's quite mainstream, and then they all later became Penguin as these people buy themselves out and churn the sort of soil over. Um, He wrote a second novel, but uh, 
which was about the concept of the doppelganger in German uh, and other literatures, and called Time of Totality, I think. And he said to me, um, is the title too portentous? And I said, well, it never appeared anywhere. Bill said, hardly oh, matters, doesn't it? Yeah. But um, there's a degree to which another thing I'd like to talk about, Bill, is his spiritual and intellectual views. Bill came of a generation that appears superficially, even in its own propagandistic terms, to be militantly atheistic. And at one level, Bill is a militant atheist. If a Jehovah's Witness came to his door, he wouldn't want to, basically. You know, go to the next one. But in a strange way, as Wilson says in one of his criminological essays, commenting on a book by a Bulgarian, I think, called Progoth, who wrote A History of Psychology, a discourse which for many people has replaced theology in the 20th century. Psychology began with the idea that God was absent from men's lives. This is my paraphrase of the first line. But a psychological investigation has proceeded during the 19th century. It has come to the conclusion that man is definitely a spiritual being. And Bill's view, which is always dialectical, is... Materialistic and or atheist in one sense, because like most moderns, and Bill is a modern. Bill is not a perennialist or a traditionalist. Bill is a right-wing modernist who accepts modernity post-Renaissance and later than that, but believes that the modern world can be other than it is. So if you like, he wants the absolute inverse of the Greg Dyke, Tony Blair world that we now live under, and the absolute inverse of all forms of communism that lay and lie to the left of that. So he wants a modernity which is based upon radical, total and pitiless inequality, as he would say. Because he loves this theory of language. And this is partly in some ways a Protestant inheritance. If you notice, Paisley, Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, they love this Old Testament language, which partly has a pagan element to it. There's almost a degree to which it's a sort of line I've invented for my own purposes from the Edda. But you can imagine one of the goddesses saying to Odin, are you a god of love? Freya or somebody. And his reply would be, poetically, no, fury. Fury is love. And that's Bill's view, really. But in a sense, love is not enough. And Christianity, a religion, of course, he's always been opposed to, although he's not opposed to Christian aesthetic culture. It's language, sculpture, buildings, statuary, but he's opposed to the ethics of the religion. Because you cannot build a world, as you're throttling third worlds in Iraq and so on, on pity and love. Because you are dishonest at the very core of your being. You can keep the sculpture, but you must be correct about your morals. In his view, of course, the crusader would be a pagan with a cross on, who had a rhetoric that said it was different. But if you look at it, it's a key dialectic which is explored in this novel, which is about the future of Western civilization, because it involves a relationship between a man and a woman on an island, in other words, in a magical realm, where the woman represents, broadly speaking, feminist-leaning, liberal-minded, Christian and mildly humanist values. That sort of reflexive mixture of liberal humanism based up with a, back with a degree of Christianity. As Iris Murdoch, the novelist who knew Bill well, said, what we need to do is dump Christianity and keep the liberal ethics, which of course is what they've done. And the other character, the demon, Flower, is will, power, becoming, 
intensity of religious process, the will to dominate, the will to structure. And they have endless arguments about meaning and purpose. Because Powart says, you can't base anything on love solely. Love contains, is energy, contains hatred and destruction within it. But you need to sublimate that and go to another level because the purpose of life is transcendent. And that is the, the moral irony which dialectically and intellectually isn't really one at all. Whereby a man is perceived as an atheist and even perceives himself to one, writes a novel called The Divine and The Decay. Because, of course, in this novel, Plowart isn't a human, he's a force. He's coming towards destiny. All the other characters, and because it's a novel that's obscure in a way and hasn't been read by that many people, all the other novels, all the other people in the novel are people who are in decay. There's a cripple in this book. It's a disabledist work. There's a cripple in this work um, who in some ways signifies post-war Britain. He lives on fashion, which is his version of Breco, this tiny little island that the Barclay brothers now live on. Irony of ironies. And which rather like Sartre had a feudal structure. So he can go from Britain as it is now to a sort of idealised Britain that's narrow and minimalist enough to make intellectual play with. Because like all artists, you take reality and you change it and you transmogrify it. It's Vulcan. You work on the material. You take people, you put things together, you cut bits off. Because art isn't being a, be, uh, about being humane. There's a strongly objective element to art. The idea that art is a sort of a liberal prerequisite when nearly 9 out of 10 artistically oriented people have liberal ideas is false. A real artist needs closer to a surgeon who works upon reality. You know... Um, it's like um, the coffee table bourgeois view that Michelangelo, some of his late sculptures, not nice. Not nice! Who cares whether it's nice or not? Because it's about glory and power! Yeah. And if you don't like it, this will be Bill's view and mine. Get out of the way! Get out of the way, I'll be trampled under. But, you know, but, but people say, that's, that's very inhuman, Mr. Hopkins. What about people who are weak? What about people who want to drink all night? What about people who just want to lie down, have got no drive, have got no push? You say, look after them. I need servants. I need slaves. And I walk along. I want people wafting things behind me to take the sunlight off me. In a hierarchical society, everyone has a place. And everyone has a purpose. And when they made the great cathedrals and so on, each craftsman had his place, signed his bit of a gargoyle with his own image, saying, I was here. Now youth writes, Kilroy was here, or some rude word was here. Then in those cathedrals they wrote, somebody contributed to glory. And of course, what he is really saying is that the liberal humanist idea that you can base all of society on the view that we're all educated, they're all well balanced, they're all refined, that we all think out every decision before we make it, that we contact with society, as Rousseau said, and bear upon us uh, obligations and responsibilities, the Blair view, obligation, responsibility, the respect agenda. It totally voids biological reality that some humans are geniuses, that others are subhuman virtually, that others are in the middle, that most people don't give a damn about anything. Remember the Hollywood film Twelve Angry Men, yeah. where they're deciding a man's fate, and one says, come on, I've got a baseball game on the telly, yeah. you know, I want to get back for that. And the liberal is outraged, this is a man's life you're talking about. They say, oh, it gives a, you know, and the majority of people in democracies are like this. Yeah. It's shopping and something else. 
you know, and they shouldn't have, in Bill Hopkins' view, any power. And they shouldn't even have the vote. Because they don't know anything about anything. At all. He said, what you need to do with the democracy is like in Iran. You structure it before you have one. <laughs> and you allow people to vote for this Monday Club type and this BNP type and this third positionist type and this National Democrat type and this Freedom Party type and so on. And they all have disputes and they say, I hate him and he scorned me in this meeting and that sort of thing. The usual stuff. But in the end, the basis behind it all is patriotic. So it's centered from the very beginning. If you have a democracy that says all values can trundle forth, I think that you'll be able... My candidate says, I, I, I want to marry children, this sort of thing. Uh, no, another candidate says, a European state. No, another candidate says, all class must be abolished. Another candidate says, there must be a totally class-based hierarchy. In other words, just a babble of conflicting voices. In the end, you won't have that anarchy. What you will have is a tendency to the crepuscular middle whereby in reaction against the possibility of such weird fauna and flora you have a centralisation of everything around middlingness around mediocrity around that which is unheroic if America comes to us and says we want you in Iraq well, well no, do we have to it's like Wilson in Vietnam we don't really want to see, you know. we want you there right away because we have an establishment that leans with one wind that comes upon it and then leans with another. It does it culturally, it does it in every other way. In the National Theatre, I once went to see a version of Venice, um, in which one of the characters, Beatrice, gives an apology for the Holocaust at the end. I don't remember that in the play, actually. Considering uh, uh, it's 500 years before. Um, and there's another... And, and they did that. Why did they do that? Because somebody on the committee um, at the National said there may be a group or a lobby or even an individual or even an obsessive guardian media who will object. And we need to cover ourselves from the prospect of the fact that somebody may be offended by introducing something that isn't in the play in the first place, so we're safe. We're safe, you know. Yeah. Um, and of course they're not safe at all because they're frightened of their own shadow from the very beginning. And there are many, many other examples. Um, there's examples from sort of um, plays by Marlowe and plays by Webster and this sort of thing from our great period when Bill would say, when we were as great as the Greeks, when we had a theatrical culture here that was the equivalent to them. And somebody will say, oh Beatrice, the heart of my whiteness does go out to you. And it's a Rastafarian. He's sort of gently trying to remember his heart, you know. And that sort of thing. And that's what is called multiracial casting. The idea is that um, we're all human. We should be blind to these things. It's a universal culture that just happens to be based in an island off Europe. You know, da 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 And... You'll be sacked from a mainstream theatre if you say, well, I will, well this, this play was written in an all-white period. Really? Yeah. Really? Is that your view, is it? Just joking. Is that your view, is it? Is an all-white period? Well, the Jacobean period was an all-white period. We don't like that tie. We don't like that attitude. You know, you see where it goes. It begins there, but it's out the door pretty bloody quickly. And uh, I think it's Richard Eyre, Richard Eyre, I think, was head of the National when many of these things were going on. He now says he was persecuted by leftists at the National and was holding the line <laughs> against decadence by doing what he could. And that he banned a play by Edward Bond, which makes it all right, you know. Um, because these people are fighting their own wars, of course, bureaucratically and institutionally. Certainly, the Workers' Revolutionary Party was very powerful at that period. Had 
no power in her anywhere else, but in some of the state arts institutions, because of the influence of the Redgrave family and elsewhere, yeah. they had a lot of influence. And this is this sort of minority left elitism that's chiseled out many of the cultural monuments of the society from the inside that people don't think about. All this prating about democracy in the street, when actual fact it's sort of vanguard left elitism of its own sort, deep inside these institutions, where um, even putting on... They still do it, actually. They still do put on plays like the Jew of Malta and so on, but uh, clapped around with endless excuses and endless procrastination. The latest thing is actually to have a white Othello so you actually don't black up the character because the play is so irredeemably racist in its language and structure that you admit your guilt and your racism beforehand by having a white actor to foreground your absence of pitilessness and your totalitarian racism. This is the sort of cultural studies um, beyond political correctness view. You basically crucify yourself beforehand before the show goes on and then you give a, a fringe white actor a bit of employment in Birmingham Rep or something. Right. Do you know what I mean? And it began with a white actor blacked up. Then it began with a black actor and now it's back to a white actor because the theories about it and how you deal with it have changed perceptively. And if somebody makes the wrong decision and says, well, I thought that old production was a rock too bad, actually, they're out. You know, it's a sort of, um, it's a sort of interesting... Terrorism, in a way, intellectual terrorism. And, of course, Bill's an intellectual terrorist, but the other way around. Because he responds to all of that with a sort of power and intellectual aggression of his own. And it is, no, it's one thing I've noticed about very liberal-minded people is that, on the whole, that spiritually, they're very weak. There are hardcore leftists who are real believers. But the bulk of the liberal vanguard, if you go down from the sort of perceived apex, are very flabby. And as soon as something which is contrary is placed before them, there will be a, a recession and a bit of a retreat. Because it's a force that they haven't heard. They particularly haven't heard the intellectualisation of right-wing ideas. People would say, Hopkins, that statement was sexist. And he said men and women are biologically different. They have for different purposes in life. Everything is based upon biology. But out of that comes a mind that soars towards spirituality. Well, you're admitting the fundamental nature and essentialism of biological difference. Well, I am. Well, that's a sexist statement. He says, I don't care. I'm a totalitarian. That's it. And they say, right. You know, Cole is getting into it. And they say, but, 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 haven't you read Andrea Dworkin? And he says, Andrea Dworkin is a fat, ugly, obese, obscene, arrogant, I met Tony Ben once in some Tory-related thing, you know. And Ben, ben had a physical reaction to the prospect of a liberalism. If somebody in the room said, well, you know, I don't like the EU, really, Ben would go, oh! <laughs> <laughs> it was like a physical shock, which is odd, actually, because Ben's campaigned against the EU because it's not integrative enough, because it's just Europe. We need the whole world together. Skinner once said that to me. He said, well, I can't. 
Yeranath, so he said, I can't be on a platform with you. I said, I'm in the Tories. He said, oh, yeah, Joe, give me that. He said, I'm against the EU, though, because I want a world proletarian state. Right. You know, uh, but Skinner will come out with it. You know, so there's a sort of streak of honesty there. But in a way, the use of this sort of psychic and moral terrorism, the facing of it down, the fact that Bill, after he was blocked because they wouldn't publish his second novel, and so only one appeared, basically. He's written lots of things himself. He's never published them since. I've tried to get him to do it, but he won't. You know, pearls before swine and all that. But um, he then decided, I need some money. So he became a millionaire. Um, which, of course, sounds just like that. But um, Bill once had a humiliating experience. He was on a tram. There were trams in London then. And the bloke came down the corridor and he thought, oh, I haven't got the money. He's about 28. And it's a long way back to Streatham or whatever area it was, you know, where the family home was. And the bloke set off. Bill said, oh, I'm an artist who's trying to further our civilization. And they set off. Off! <laughs> so he got off and trudged home in the rain. And he said, I'm intellectual and the daily mirror has thrown mud at me, but I'm being chucked up a tram because I haven't got the fare. This is not how things should be. So he decided, how do we work this out? So he noticed that all these beautiful sort of Georgian houses and so on were being wrecked. And all the fireplaces were being ripped out. And the stairways were being demolished. And this all, it was all being chucked in the street. Old Britain, tad and garbage. Out in the street. And he thought, somebody will want to buy this. So he bought what today would be called a skip. And he went round late at night with a few lads who he gave a little bit of money to. And he got all of this thing, these things that others, somebody else despised. Because he realised in a short while, pre-internet and so on, he could find people who wanted it. And then collectors from the United States used to come over and see him and say, oh, I do love that fireplace. And Bill would say, thousand quid. Pardon? Thousand quid. You know, you know the meaning of money. And they went, okay. You know, and that was the start. And um, uh, Bill, Bill is a modernist in many ways because of elements of primitivism and barbarity and fury in it, which essentially accords with his partially demonic nature. I mean, that's just a fact. But he, he's a champion of a movement which, in a sense, would end modernism by proving some of its antecedents. It's a movement called Art Brew, which technically comes out of André Breton's surrealist movement. And this is a movement where people like Dubuffet, who founded it, Dubuffet would say this is a canvas, Dubuffet would do an outline of a red child with a big eye. Oh, I like that. And then he'd get some pink paint and he'd throw it on. And he'd get a big red roller, big blue roller. I think, well, this is really good. And then he'd get a bit of this. And he'd get a bit of this. And then he'd get a big sponge or maybe some acid or something and put it on the sponge and chuck it on and have a good scrub round. And he'd stand back and say, God, a maniac and a child could have done that. He's marvellous. They sell it for 85,000 each in Sotheby's. Like, could you not? I've been in the auctions when they've been sold. And Bill thought to himself, this is interesting, isn't it? The art of the maniac, the art of the ultimate outsider, lunatic, crepuscular, he hasn't got any arms, he's lying on the ground, but he can paint with his mouth. So, what do we do? So, um, he's part of this movement uh, of sort of anti-artists, which is interesting, actually, because a significant part of modernism is based upon mental interiority is based not on representing that which is outside, which of course cinema has done in the 20th century, but going inside the mind to sexual imagery, to fantasy, um, to internal discourses, sort of sub-sub-sub-sub-sub-Blake, if you like. And 
He's, um, he's gathered a fortune from this sort of stuff, and it's not even that fashionable because there are elements of modernism that are resistant.